You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The scripture reading for today is Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him, because the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Semothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. This is God's word. You may be seated. Great job with all those names, Michelle. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. as needy people, tired people, confused, people broken, people, and we desperately need your living word to work powerfully in us by your spirit. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to Work through the word this morning, change us, mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Conform us collectively as a church to follow in the footsteps of the early church in all the ways that we ought to. Guide us, Holy Spirit, as we study the infallible word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I love the Minnesota Vikings. Always have, always will, which means I also loathe the Green Bay Packers. Today, these two teams will play. At different points this week, I watched far too many short videos of so-called experts as they meticulously analyzed both teams. Inevitably, one of these experts uttered the following phrase, here are the keys to the game. What he's trying to highlight are the things that must be done, in his opinion, for a particular team to win the game. The keys to the game are often things like control the line of scrimmage, win the turnover battle, limit explosive plays, score more points than the other team. Now, generally, the keys to the game are the same for every football team and every game. But again, identifying the keys to the game is a way of pinpointing what must happen for a team to be successful. If the Vikings are going to win, these things must happen. Our text this morning offers us something like this, but instead of identifying things that must happen for someone to win a game... Our text draws our attention to things that must happen for the mission of God to advance in the world. In the first 15 chapters of Acts, we find the church advancing. And now in the first 15 verses of Acts 16, we find keys to the advance of the church. These are things that you can find in the first 15 chapters, but they're reiterated now. Before we jump in, I need you to remember what transpired in chapter 15. That's the context for what we'll talk about this morning, at least initially. Here's a brief summary. A council of church leaders gathered in Jerusalem to resolve a fundamental question of whether Gentiles must first become Jews in order to be saved. The controversy pitted Judaizers against Paul's gospel of free grace and represented one of the earliest and most serious threats to the unity of the church. In the end, the Jerusalem Council clearly acknowledged that God saves Gentile believers by faith alone, apart from circumcision or keeping the Jewish law. But if you remember, the church did also encourage Gentile believers to be very sensitive. To be very sensitive about certain stipulations of the law in order to maintain peace and fellowship with their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. So we could summarize it this way. The decision of the Jerusalem Council produced gospel clarity but it would also require Christ-like humility. Brothers and sisters, the source of our unity is the gospel. But our experience of that unity requires that we all walk in humility. In fact, chapter 15 
concluded with an incredible portrait of humility. As God took a disagreement between two godly men and turned it into an opportunity for greater gospel advance. Barnabas and John Mark went one direction with the message of Jesus and Paul and Silas went another direction. Chapter 16 picks up the story and has us following Paul and Silas. And as we walk in their footsteps, we will see how the gospel advances. So first, first I want you to see that the advance of the gospel requires contextual sensitivity. The advance of the gospel requires contextual sensitivity. You see this in verses 1 through 5. As the gospel moves to new places and new people, this is what we find. Questions arise, conversations happen. How best can we reach these people with this message of the gospel? Look at verse 1 again. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. He is visiting with and, and hoping to strengthen existing congregations, those established on his first missionary journey. But notice who we're introduced to in verse 1. A disciple named Timothy. What does the text tell us about Timothy? Well, first, as I just said, he was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. Now, this isn't the case with everybody we encounter in the New Testament, but it is with Timothy. Later in the New Testament, we find out that Timothy had some wonderfully godly women in his life that faithfully taught him the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I think it's important that we take note of this. In light of what we're going to read and study in Acts, I, I want us to understand how this all came about. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14, Paul encourages Timothy to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In, in God's sovereignty, brothers and sisters, the ministry of Timothy recorded in the New Testament is the result of the faithful witness of a godly mother and grandmother. I, I pray that we will never underestimate the history-altering work of godly women who labor tirelessly to teach children the Word of God. In fact, 
mothers and grandmothers just because you aren't out front paving the way for the gospel to advance to unreached people groups. Please be reminded and assured that your daily work with your own children and grandchildren is no less important. Timothy is not only a believer, but he is a believer with a Jewish mother and a Greek father. The text also tells us that he had a good reputation. And apparently Paul believed that Timothy could be very helpful as a part of his missionary team. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. But there was a problem. Paul believed that there was something that needed to happen or else Timothy's otherwise fruitful ministry might be dismissed. Paul believed that Timothy needed to be circumcised before joining the team and traveling with Paul and Silas. F.F. Bruce explains a dynamic that wouldn't make sense to us right away, but it's undoubtedly what influenced Paul's thinking. This is what Bruce writes. As an uncircumcised son of a mixed marriage... Timothy would have been regarded by Jews in the region as technically an apostate Jew. So that would have hindered his ministry. You see, Paul understood the culture of the people, and he was endeavoring to reach them with the gospel and encourage them in the gospel, and he feared that Timothy's lack of circumcision would be an obstacle to gospel ministry. Right? This sounds strange to us, but that's why we have these details here and we seek to understand. Now, some of you may be wondering what makes this situation different than Galatians 2. Galatians 2, where Paul discouraged Titus from being circumcised. Well, I want you to listen to this carefully. According to Galatians 2, verse 4, a group of false believers were reacting to the freedom in Christ that Paul was preaching and that many people were enjoying. And so they were demanding circumcision, or as Paul calls it, a kind of slavery. But in Acts 16, no one is forcing anything. Paul is simply anticipating a potential obstacle to gospel ministry, and out of love for those he wants to receive the ministry of Timothy, he encourages Timothy to become all things to all men. Something Paul himself was willing to do. Paul's desire, I want you to hear this, Paul's desire was to remove any hindrance to the advance of the gospel and the strengthening of the church. And so he appeals to Timothy. He appeals to him to endure circumcision for the sake of gospel flourishing and ministry fruitfulness. One way we could refer to what Paul encourages and what Timothy does here is we could say they are contextualizing 
By contextualizing, I mean they are wisely adapting to the specific ministry context that God has placed them in, and they are carefully removing obstacles to the gospel and identifying with the people they're trying to reach. Uh, let me explain this idea further. I love how Tony Morita fleshes out this idea of contextualization. He writes, in this passage, we once again find a missionary application for today. Paul was willing to become all things to all people in order to reach them with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. He wanted to adapt to different audiences without changing the gospel. Marita writes, we should be willing to do the same. As long as adapting doesn't mean adopting a sinful action, we should be willing to follow certain cultural customs in order that hearers may receive the gospel. Our goal, after all, isn't to press our culture on another culture, but to press the gospel into various cultures. So, Marita concludes, if people reject your ministry, make sure it's the gospel that's the stumbling block to effectiveness and not your cultural biases or practices. If you need to wear a yarmulke when speaking to Jews, then do it. If you need to sit on the floor with Muslims in order to converse, sit on the floor. If you need to wear a particular type of robe in a village in order to address the unreached, then put on the robe. If you need to abstain from certain foods, do it. Put no stumbling block in the way of the gospel. I was reminded of this a few summers ago when Karen and I were enjoying a visit uh, with some of our closest friends, friends that have been serving in China for the last 10 years. Uh, they've been there seeking to share Jesus with an unreached Muslim Chinese people group. When our friends were visiting with us, they explained how they adhere to certain dietary restrictions because of their desire to engage this very particular group of people they believe God has called them to reach. They explained that their efforts to engage this people group wouldn't get anywhere unless they were willing to eat what they ate and abstain from the foods they abstained from. In fact, I remember them saying, if we didn't do this, they would never even set foot inside our apartment. But then they added that this is a small sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what about us? What are we willing to sacrifice for the sake and spread of the gospel? Are there, are there preferences we hold tightly to? Are there cultural preferences that create unnecessary barriers to our witness? Are we humble enough to set aside things we love in order to love the people that are all around us. The advance of the gospel requires contextual sensitivity. Second, the advance of the gospel requires spirit 
dependence. We see this in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. As the Apostle Paul and his missionary team are traveling, they first make plans to minister in Asia, but what happened? The text says the Holy Spirit forbid them from speaking a word in Asia. Okay, then what's plan B? Verse 7, they attempted to go into a place called Bithynia, but what happened? The text says that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So here you have a team of men who are passionate about encouraging churches and they want to make much of Jesus, but every plan they make gets shut down by the Holy Spirit. Now notice what happens in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So there is a lot of speculation about the identity of the man who appeared to Paul in this vision, but the text doesn't tell us. And frankly, to become fixated on the identity of the messenger would cause us to overlook the one who is primarily the focus of these four verses. In fact, throughout the entire book of Acts, we have seen how the Holy Spirit how the Holy Spirit has been working in and through his people for the sake and spread of the gospel. This is just another example of the Holy Spirit orchestrating the advance of the gospel according to a divine and perfect plan. And friends, what was God's plan? Well, verses 9 and 10, God wanted the gospel in Macedonia, so he made it go to Macedonia. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us that like Paul and his team, we are servants of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, put here to live in every way to the glory of God. And as we walk through life, we plan and we pray, but we've all experienced times when God intervenes. He changes our plan. But he's always doing this for his own glory, for our ultimate good, and for the spread of his gospel. I'm often reminded of this as I'm hearing testimonies and reading through testimonies of incoming members. So many stories of, of the Holy Spirit guiding and directing, changing plans but doing it in a way that didn't make sense. Sometimes it was painful, sometimes it was hard, but it was always leading to something better. So think about this. Paul and his team want to encourage and strengthen churches. But as they make plans, the Holy Spirit frustrates their plans, not once, but twice. And then finally, these men receive clear direction by means of a miraculous vision. Now, friends, God may choose to guide some of us in this same way. But he more often guides and directs us by his spirit through more ordinary means. 
the essential reminder for us here is to walk through life with a sensitivity to the Spirit's leading. In other words, make your plans. Cover your bases. But walk in humility, knowing that God is sovereign over everything. And if and when he chooses, you will experience a Holy Spirit interruption. And in those moments, in those moments, brothers and sisters, acknowledge God's sovereignty, embrace God's goodness, rest in God's love, and engage in his mission. He's got a plan, and it's always better than what you and I had planned. Now, I didn't say easier. It, it may involve confusion initially, pain, suffering. But again, when God interrupts, acknowledge his sovereignty, embrace his goodness, rest in his love, and engage in his mission. God, this, this isn't what I planned. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. But what do you want from me? How can I make much of Jesus in this unexpected circumstance? I want you to notice what Paul does after receiving this vision, verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. When the text says they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to those in Macedonia, I, I take this to mean that after Paul received the vision, he took the time to discuss it with his team members, relying on their collective wisdom to discern God's will. Again, there is wisdom for us here. Uh, when you believe, friend, that God is leading you to do something, it is good to enlist the help of your brothers and sisters in the decision-making process. Unwise decisions and unhelpful choices can be avoided by rejecting the temptation to fly solo through the Christian life. And in the context of our study this morning, maybe, maybe we should make the direct application to the person who believes they are being called to the ministry or, or being called into missions. In such cases, it is both wise and biblical to lean into your faith family, to trust your spiritual friends and spiritual leaders to help you confirm God's call and direction in your life. May God grant us all the grace to walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So the advance of the gospel requires contextual sensitivity. 
The advance of the gospel requires spirit dependence, making sure that our plans are aligned with his, that he's leading the charge. And finally, the advance of the gospel requires sovereign intervention. Sovereign intervention. We see this in verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and, following, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. As Paul and his team followed the prompting and instructions of the Holy Spirit, they arrive in Philippi, and we're about to find out why. Why is it that the Spirit was directing them to this place? We find this out at least in part by this story relayed to us. Instead of the synagogue, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and probably Luke as well, went to where they supposed there was a place of prayer. What these men found was a group of gathered women who had come together. And the text singles out one woman in particular. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. According to the text, Lydia was a wealthy woman from a city known for purple dye and textiles. So basically, Lydia was a successful businesswoman who had some interest in the things of God. The fact that she is referred to as a worshiper of God does not necessarily mean she was a true believer in Jesus. In fact, it's similar to how Cornelius was described back in chapter 10 as one who feared God. Both appear to have an interest in God and the teaching of the scriptures, but they lacked something essential. Friends, whether you're a military leader like Cornelius or a successful businesswoman like Lydia, interest in spiritual things is not enough to gain peace with God. No one is given new life by showing interest in spiritual things. No, a sinner has to be acted upon to be saved. And that's precisely what happened to Cornelius, and that's also what happens here. Midway through verse 14, the text tells us that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Well, friends, this is what must. This is what must happen for any person to be born again. God must act upon a sinner, bringing life, opening blind eyes, breathing life into death. This is what happens to Lydia. The Lord sovereignly opened her heart. Brothers and sisters, I, I want to pause for a moment. And I want you to, I want to invite you to marvel at the grace of God in your life. 
the spiritual life that you now enjoy in Christ was not, it was not the result of anything you did. While you were dead in your trespasses and sins and blind to the beauty of Christ, God sought you out and made you new. Lydia's story is every Christian story. This is why we sing often together. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. That's a very poetic way of saying the Lord opened your heart. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. And how do we know Lydia was converted to Christ? Well, she apparently shared the gospel with her whole family or facilitated that somehow. And they all believed. And they were all baptized together. Verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is a glorious scene. What a story of God's kindness. Notice, though, that the conversion and baptism of Lydia and her household is not the end of the story. After Lydia shared her faith with her household, she shared her house with Paul and his missionary team. Friends, nothing we've talked about this morning Nothing recorded in this text is a result of careful planning or entrepreneurial creativity. This is all the result of God's sovereignty. God has been beautifully orchestrating all of this for his purposes. And it has led us to this point where God has gloriously saved a woman named Lydia and then saved her entire household. And then what happened? Well, this is the birth of the Philippian church. This is the birth of the Philippian church, maybe the healthiest church in the entire New Testament. And it all begins here. Brothers and sisters, you never... No, listen, you never know all that God is doing. Of all the ways he could have started a church in Philippi, he chose a woman named Lydia who was faithfully providing for her family, and then she faithfully shared the gospel with her family, and then she faithfully opened up her home to care for this team of missionaries. I, I hope this encourages each of you. 
whatever God has called you to do, do it faithfully. Make much of Jesus. Only heaven will reveal all that God was orchestrating and accomplishing through your faithful obedience. The gospel will advance. It can't be stopped. But it will advance through contextual sensitivity. Christians thinking carefully about the places and the people God has called them to serve. The gospel will advance through spirit dependence. We all need to submit our plans to God's. And the gospel will advance through sovereign intervention. Unless the Lord acts in power, no sinner will ever come to faith in Christ. These, and many other things, are the keys to the advance of the gospel in our homes, in our city, and to the ends of the earth. And what I love about this is this portrait it gives us. So some here, some are like Paul. Timothy, Silas, God has called you to a ministry that resembles theirs. But some of you can identify a lot more with someone like Lydia. Maybe the, the business part of her life. Or maybe the, the faithful witness she is to her family. Maybe the hospitality she shows to the missionaries, all, all of us have a part to play in this process. And I, I love that the book of Acts introduces us to these different characters, different characters that I think all of us on some level can identify with. And God then will use all of us in our own way as he has gifted us to accomplish his great worldwide mission. Let's pray together.